Today on Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, we have with us Hannah Frankman. Hannah, give me a little background before we jump in. That's always such a hard question to answer. There's so many different places I can take that. Um, The very short version, like what most people get on the internet, is I grew up homeschooled, have been working in alternative education ever since I graduated high school, pretty much, which is almost eight years now. Um, I'm currently running Rebel Educator, which is an Uh, basically an internet media hub for talking about everything alternative education. Um, I told somebody asked me today, how would you explain what you do to a 10 year old? And I'm like, I write a lot about leaving school on the internet. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I do a lot of different things. I run a marketing agency. I'm a writer. I'm a podcaster. I'm kind of a, yeah, I don't know. I'm a, and your podcast is coming out soon. Yeah. It's coming out very soon. Excellent. Yeah. I'm a person with a short attention span, so I need to be doing lots of different things to keep me interested and so it's always hard to answer the question what I do. I do a lot of things. <laughs> well, you've mentioned the term alternative education a couple of different times. Yeah. Talk me through it. There's, I mean, there, I'm guessing that there's, you know, sort of the standard education. You've got kindergarten and, and various things before that. And then you basically got pretty standardized stuff, grade one through 12, four years of college, potential master's, potential PhD, et cetera. Mm-hmm. My guess is that's not what we're talking about. My guess is it's something very different. Yeah. I, so basically alternative education is everything that's not the standard K through 12, likely carrying on to you know, post-secondary education, government schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the status quo. 90% of kids in America go either to a government school or to a private school that is basically the same model. It's, you know, in different colors or with different trappings or branding, but it's basically the same thing. Um, And alternative education is everything that is not that. And it's a very broad spectrum. It can be homeschooling. It can be local micro schools. It can be online private schools. It can be in-person private schools that are running different models. Um, But basically it's different modes of education where people are actually stopping and saying, wait a second, what are we educating kids for? Why does it matter? Why are we doing this in the first place? What are the outcomes that we're trying to attain with these kids? What is the long-term, you know, life trajectory that we want them to be on or that they want to be on? And how do we set them up for that? And then how do we design an education experience that's going to help them become the whole competent, ideally happy humans that we would like them to be? And there's a lot of different ways of answering that question. So there are a lot of different modalities of alternative education that are out there. If I could pick out a theme, it seems like, at least to me, that it's very student first. It is. And it seems like you don't think that the current educate. I would, by the way, agree. <laughs> so I, I won't put the onus on you, but I, I would tend to agree that things at present are not are not particularly student first. No, we have a very top down education system and we can go into great detail about where that comes from and why if that is of interest to you that's something I'm always happy to talk about but we have a very top-down very bureaucratic it's a very systematized system it is a system a system does not care about the well-being of its individual parts first a system cares about the survival of the system and all the individual pieces within it are secondary to that primary goal. And so, of course, the education system cannot have the individual student top of mind. It's not important compared to the system. But alternative education is much more of a bottom-up education approach where you start with a student and you say, okay, who who is this person, this individual? What do we want them to be? 
and how do we design an education that's going to maximize their potential? So I, I do want to dive into that. But before we dive into that, I, I guess the question becomes, what are the opposing forces from doing this? I mean, the, the reason I ask is, right? Yeah. You would have to imagine that every parent in the world would be like, yeah, of course I want student first. I mean, why why wouldn't you when you have kids, right? You would want your student or your, your, your child. It's like the, my kid's education becomes before anything. I, I would argue that Almost no parent would say any different. You would think. You, you would think. <laughs> or, or maybe we should just hope. But regardless, even if you just set, set it out there and said, okay, you've got one education system that cares about the system and one of them that cares about the student, you would imagine that an extreme vast majority of people would, would end up picking, okay, well, I want to go to the one that benefits the student. Now, why isn't that? Because I do want to dive into the actual underpinnings of, of, of the system as it exists. But why, why does it exist in this way? Why can't we get out from underneath this? That, that is the million dollar question. Um, and there are, there are a lot of reasons. One is that there's a great quote from, from Keynes of all people. Um, he said, I'm going to butcher the paraphrase a little bit, but it's something along the lines of it is better to fail with the group at large than it is to succeed on your own doing something is, different. This is John Maynard Keynes, mm -hmm. my alma mater. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about because it's, it's, it's true. It's very scary to do something that is different. And I really think that most people like you have to step outside of the matrix to see it for what it is. When you're in it, it just, it is the thing to do that's in the right. best interest of your kid. Like most people truly believe that sending their kids to public school is the thing that is most, most in, in their interest that is most likely to set them up for success. And it's even when you have questions about like, okay, is this is like, is my kid really thriving here? Is this really setting them up for success? It's very hard to do something that's different and that is less proven. Like when you have 90% of the population doing one thing and it's like, well, you know, like we're attaining normal outcomes through this. And you can argue that normal outcomes are not very acceptable. Like 54% of the American population reads at or below a sixth grade level, according to the United States Department of Education. That's embarrassing. It is. It's we're not in the top 10 in any subject and on a global level, like not even close. We're not we're not winning anywhere academically. Our, our system is abysmal. Hmm. But like, you know, it's normal. It's the thing you do. And it's very scary to step off of that and do something different, especially when the different path is far less defined. So this is talking about sort of the 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 path not taken, although mm -hmm. I'm going to skip the Blake references because everybody gets that completely wrong. He's actually saying that the paths are identical, but never mind. We, we don't need to dive into the, the poetry, but that's, which I understand what you're saying. That's, that's the, that's the hesitation for diving into it. What mm -hmm. props the system up, I guess would be the question because it mm -hmm. seems like, and we've kind of talked offline about this, but it seems like there's some pretty diametrically opposed incentives in this mm -hmm. system. So why, why is it impossible to change that system? I understand from the parents' point, yeah, yeah, I mean, if I take them out of school, I don't know what's going to happen. 
which is fair, or maybe they don't have the time or there's a million different reasons, but going to the other side of it, what, what does it look like from, from the system side? Well, one is a monopoly. So it's a very, it's very close to being a complete monopoly. Mm. Um, and so there's just like less competition factors at play. Like there's, there's not a lot of pressure to do better because people aren't really leaving in numbers. I mean, they are now post COVID there. I think the school systems are a little on their toes, but this is a very new phenomenon. Um, so that's the first thing. Like they don't have to change Two, it's a bureaucracy and it's an enormous bureaucracy. It's a very, it's a very, uh, calcified, mm. very complex, very top heavy bureaucracy. And that makes change very difficult. Um, like, the amount of government regulation and layers of bureaucracies that you have to move through to see change on in individual classroom level is so complex mm -hmm. that it's like taking the largest ship in the world and trying to turn it around when it's going full steam in one direction. It's just the laws of physics are not in your favor, metaphorically speaking. Um, so it's very hard to see change and also like, Everybody has a vested interest in being right about all of this already. Like nobody wants to stop and say, you know what? Like we've been doing this wrong forever. Like, oops, our bad, we'll fix that. That's a very, like nobody wants to put themselves in that position either. So it gets very complicated very quickly to try to affect change because no one wants to hear you. No one's incentivized to change. Like everybody already, especially the administrators, like they have very cushy salaries and like very good setups and they don't want it to change. Like it doesn't. And and like the system, it's it's plugging forward with fairly abysmal, but like also kind of acceptable outcomes. So there is no forcing function for change to occur, which is why you and I have talked about this already. I think that um, like education reform is a in my opinion it's just like a lost cause like it's not it's not worth the time and the energy because it's so hard to affect change you look like you don't agree with me and we can talk about that in a second but <laughs> but like the best the most effective change comes through innovative alternatives being built like i'm much more bullish on alternative schools being built that challenge the status quo that have better outcomes parents start leaving the system for those schools and then suddenly the system is forced to change because it either has to adapt or die and it's, i don't think it's going to change until it is until it has those types of and i mean I, I talk to teachers a lot on especially on twitter where i spend a lot of time and i talk to a lot of teachers who are very frustrated with the system and are very excited about everything that i'm talking about but i also talk to a lot of teachers who think that i'm just like full of it like they think that all of my takes are ridiculous and have no basis in fact whatsoever and that I don't understand how children learn and that I don't understand pedagogy and all of these things and I think there are a lot of people inside the system who really think there's nothing wrong and so they why why would they change things when they think it's already working perfectly I, I wasn't about to disagree with you by the way <laughs> what I was gonna say was I, I thought you meant lost cause in the sense of we shouldn't do anything uh, but I think you meant like yeah trying to like completely transform it but what you're talking about is no innovate such that it must transform uh, evolve or die type of deal. Yeah, the, we're I, in, there's a ship that's moving very quickly towards a sandbank. It's going to get grounded. Don't try to turn the ship around. Get off the ship. Get on a smaller ship right. that you actually can control the movement of. Turn. Yeah. And then head on your way. So in this, again, in this particular realm, <laughs> as we're as we're sort of sort of going through these, mm -hmm. 
um, it seems odd that you would get such strong pushback. I'm not saying that you don't, I'm positive you do, but it seems slightly odd, at least in my, my view, it's where it's like, you know, there is nothing to support what you say, not you, but the, the teachers, the teachers who are disagreeing with you. There's nothing to support what they say. Nothing. In fact, all evidence is to the contrary. Whereas uh, spending for schools has gone up since 1960, whatever. I think we were at six or seven trillion at present. Um, and the result, by the way, of spending more and more per student, the result is an absolute net failure across the board on every test. Um, they've literally been declining since I think it was 60, whatever it was, 60 or 65 or whatever it was. So there's some pretty strong empirical evidence that it's like, look, you can argue this till your face is blue and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, but the numbers say you don't know what you're doing, right? Do they have any argument to that? I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you come at them with these stats. Yeah, well, the... This, the sort of collective story that we're all living in is that you send your kids to school. The experts, I always use quotation marks around experts. Now I've become very skeptical of the term over the past few years. But <laughs> the experts who have been trained in colleges of education know how to educate your kids. They have some secret knowledge that parents don't have about how to teach kids. And you you send your children to these experts. These experts will educate them. They'll prepare them to get into colleges. They'll prepare them for the workforce. That's the path for success. We all just sort of outsource it. And I think a lot of people are also like on the parent side. It's very scary to start questioning that because like there's no responsibility greater than the future outcomes of your kid. Like if you mess it up, you mess up their entire lives. Like that's a terrible thing to get wrong. So people are very afraid of it and and rightly so. Like I think it's a very legitimate thing to say like wow this is a really big deal mm. i would argue that you know if it's such a big deal you should be getting them out of the schools immediately but i understand i empathize with with the fear um but we're all just like living in this collective story that most people don't stop to ask questions about and that's a very hard thing when when everybody you know believes the story it's a very hard spell to break yourself from so i think there's a lot of that going on when people are like what are you talking about um but yeah, they don't they don't tend to have a great answer to the numbers and the stats. If they do, it's because of funding issues. We don't have enough money. We can't we can't solve these problems because we're underfunded, we're undersupported. Um but people take great issue to a lot of the like I'll post thing. I posted a tweet this past week on my personal Twitter about how parents Parents are qualified to teach their own children. And if you think that like the idea that parents aren't is one of the weirdest social like fallacies we've all come to believe. And somehow that tweet started circulating in teacher circles. And I got so many hate comments. I was getting there was like this whole faction of teachers from New South Wales. I don't know how they found me, but they were and, and some somebody from Cork, England was like giving me a very hard time about this. Um, but people were telling me this was an irresponsible thing to say and that I was like, I clearly don't understand how pedagogy works and that it was like the pushback. It was like people took great offense to the idea that I was challenging their profession that they went to school for 
by saying someone someone said why would you like why would you ex like why would you why, why not google something you could just ask an expert i mean this this whole the entire time you've been speaking mm -hmm. one phrase has been rattling around in my head which is square peg round hole <laughs> um the education system isn't right for everybody. There's no. nothing that's right for everybody. And no. the other thing that would sort of came to mind is I have a, a bunch of Israeli friends in a bunch of different spots. Um, and the reason I say this is, you know, nearly every Israeli has to go through, the, through uh, I think it's a year or two of military service. It's, mm -hmm. it's conscription. Most of them are like, yeah, I really liked the military. It was great because, and I was like, would you be, would you still be on? They're like, hell no. But I loved when I was in it. And it's because when they do it, it's like between high school and college. And it's this weird time, and they're just like, yeah, you, I mean, you learn some army stuff, but you're also kind of screwing around, and like you don't know any better, you, you know, <laughs> um, and, et cetera, et cetera, which is which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and yet there were other people who were like, no, I hated it worse than anything. I I, I was I, I literally like two of my two of my they were joking, but they were like, I almost changed my religion so I can get out of it. Um, they were joking; they wouldn't have actually done that, but they 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 were like, I couldn't stand doing it. Yeah. My point there is, there are. Systems that have seen millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of people, and yet I, I can't think of a single one of those where it's like, look, you're you're gonna. This is not right for a non, a, a, you know, this is not right for a a notably significant portion yeah. of the people going through it. Um, and it's weird that you tend to get pushback from some of these teachers. At least in my view, that's weird. Because they're effectively saying, yeah, parents are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. Yes. There's a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of that sentiment going on. And, and you're you're on the money with this point that we're trying like the biggest flaw of our education system. There are a lot of them. But the biggest one is that we've been operating under the assumption for well over 100 years now in America specifically that there is one correct way to educate everyone. And that in and that that is the assumption that the entire rest of the system rests upon. And it's a flawed assumption because there isn't one way to educate kids. And and really deep down, we all know that. But again, it's a system. It has to operate with some level of efficiency. You can't be catering to every single individual student and also operate at the scale that the current system operates at. Like there's just no way to make that functionally happen. And when you think about it, practically speaking, too, when you have a classroom of 30 kids, you're not teaching to every kid in the room. You're teaching to the average. So you're if you're teaching, say you're teaching um, long division and you have a class of 30 kids, not every child is ready for long division at the same time and not every child understands it the same way. So you're teaching to the average in the class yes. because that's how you're like as a teacher, your hands are tied. You have nothing else you can do. You have to reach as many of these kids as possible. So you're teaching to the average in the class and there are going to be a handful of kids who've already learned long division because they're really good at math and they're just bored. And then there's also a handful of kids that's not really ready for long division and they're struggling to get through it. And then, you know, you kind of have the margins and the kids in the middle who are actually being taught. But like a 60 to 70 percent is a passing grade in a classroom. So a kid can go through and get like 60 to 70 percent of the questions right. They don't really get long division because they're getting a third of the problems wrong. Mm -hmm. But technically they pass and then they move on to fractions and then they move on to like pre-algebra or whatever. And they're learning each one of these things at like two thirds of the way. And so a kid can go through an entire mathematics education from kindergarten all the way through high school 
and really only grasp like two thirds of the concepts that they were being taught and really not understand how math works. Which is because troublesome because they it builds upon itself. It, yeah, right. so you have you get to algebra and you're just fumbling and you don't know why, but really it's because you keep getting like the long division and the fractions wrong because you don't understand how to do those, but you technically passed, so you move forward. But that's happening, like math is a very tangible example to give of this because it's very measurable. Everyone can see what you know and what you don't. But that same phenomenon is happening in every classroom in America for every subject. There's a handful of kids that are actually being served by it, but then most kids are either being underserved or, well, underserved in both directions. Either they're just like bored because they're not being challenged enough or they're not learning at all because the material is too advanced and they, the gap can't be bridged. And teachers are doing their best. It's not their fault. They're they're strapped into a terrible system. But we're miseducated. Like just because of that mechanical flaw in the way the system is set up, we're miseducating so many kids because we can't serve them all under the current model. It seems like, and I don't like saying this because I'm a technologist, but it <laughs> seems like this is an area where technology has not only struggled to do anything, but especially during COVID when we went basically pure tech, it seems like we 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 really screwed this up. I, I don't necessarily mean to blame all technology. In fact, I won't because I'm 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 too biased to do so. <laughs> At least I'll admit it. But it, it does seem like this is this is an area where it's like it's ripe for disruptions. Some some sort of technology needs to come out. Not necessarily software, but you know, there's there's lots of different tech and science. But it seems like we're we're struggling to 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 do this because again, as as I'm hearing you, you know, let, let, let's say we have what seventy million. Is that a good guess for kids in 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 one through twelve? I should know the number off the top of my head, and I don't remember. We can. It's got to be at least fifty that. million bare it's a, minimum. It's a lot of kids. Bare minimum. It's got to be at least fifty million. Let's just say it's fifty million. It's there's three hundred thirty million people in the country. It's got to be fifty. Yeah. Let's say it's fifty million. We don't need fifty million programs. I don't think that's what you're suggesting. No. Right. But my point is, like, there's not that many archetypes of people out there. And we've basically focused on one. It's like, well, this captures a good amount of people. It's like, but you're leaving a huge amount of other people behind. Is there not a way we can devise a system? And again, maybe here's where technology can c come out. But like where you take X amount of I, I don't know what we would even call them because I'm not they wouldn't really be tests in the traditional sense. But like, um. So some type of measurement where it's like, here's how this person learns and here's how this person learns. Some people are visual. Some people are not. Some people are auditory. Some people are not. Some people literally need to read it. Like, mm -hmm. like you could tell them all day and then all of a sudden they read it. And the, the exact same thing that you said and they, they got it. And it seems like there, there it wouldn't be like even a hundred archetypes. Seems like there'd be like maybe 10. That's an arbitrary guess, but my, my guess is it's probably less than that. There's probably five where you could capture 90-something percent of the, the, the people. What's the reason we don't kind of go go down that route? And is there a way technology could help us go down that route? Yeah, I have I have a lot of thoughts in response to that. I'll, I'll dig into a couple of different pieces yeah, as we break go. It down. But <laughs> the Because we'll come back to the learning styles thing, like the ways that different people learn, because there's a lot of there are a lot of conflicting views on how that works. Um, but on the technology front, so we actually we do have the technology to do this. It's not a it's it's kind of an innovation problem, but it's not really an innovation problem. It's an adoption problem. I got so it. there are so there's been research that's been done over the past 50 plus years coming out of like every every top tier college in the country and honestly, probably the world on like how we actually learn. 
a hundred years ago, we didn't really understand scientifically what's going on behind the eyes when we're like learning to read and learning math, but we understand that now. And we understand what types of education approaches lead to the best results. We know all of this. We have tons of different learning science strategies for understanding like how to convey information to everyone, but especially to kids in a way that they'll grasp. And the education system at large, this like big bureaucratic education monopoly complex that we have going on in our country has not adopted any of it because it's inconvenient. So in the, I I forget the year, I want to say it's like 1982. um, Why is it inconvenient? Well, is that a different topic? No, no, no. We can we can go there. So it's inconvenient because it requires changing the entire model. So there was a paper that was published uh, maybe like 40 years ago. Uh, it's called Bloom's Two Sigma, Two Sigma Problem. And basically the idea was that um, research was done on how kids learn and retain information most effectively. And it was discovered that kids learn best when they're getting they're they're taught something directly at that's like one step above the level of what they already understand. So it's like incremental learning where you understand all this and you build one 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 story above the foundation you already have. Lego blocks. Yep. And then you you do quick testing on what you just learned. So like it's called active recall where you're like basically being quizzed on what you just learned. And then based on how you did in that quiz, you iterate, you like you do the next the next Lego block, the next level up accordingly. So you like fill in the gaps and then you add a little more. And you can't do that in a classroom setting with 30 kids because basically it requires the teacher giving a lecture and then handing out a pop quiz right after everybody completes it. And then the teacher grades those quizzes immediately and then iterates on what to do next for each student based on how they did on that quiz, based on their level of understanding. And you can't replicate that in our current classroom model. It would require like completely changing the system. But what does do that really well is learning apps because like something like Khan Academy or IXL. I I love Khan Academy. Yeah. It's amazing. Any of these, like Duolingo is another great example. This is something that like adults can relate to because most adults have at least tried it. So when you get on Duolingo, and you pick whatever language, say you want to learn Spanish, and you fill out, like, they have you do a quiz to see where you're at. Like, if you've if you've never spoken Spanish before, they just drop you into the beginning. But it's like, yeah, like, I took a little bit in high school, and I, like, sort of remember a little bit. They'll have you go through a quiz. They'll see where you're at. And then the algorithm, the software that's running, creates a plan specifically tailored for you and all of the gaps. So in the quiz, they see, like, what types of words you're getting wrong and what types of, like, gaps you have. And then they'll start you out exactly like one step above where you are and you'll go through like all the practice, you know, like you'll, you'll, they'll have all the different, like what, what word goes here and what does this word mean? And all the like matching stuff that you do in the app. And then you'll do a quiz. You'll go through, like you'll practice that for like four or five lessons. You'll do a quiz. They'll see where you're at and then they iterate accordingly. And this app, because of the way the algorithm is set up, you can just iterate ad infinitum. It's actually, so, it's actually a machine learning algorithm. I know some folks that do yes, a lingo, yes. so I, you, I know this know pretty well. You know the technical well. side of this better than yeah, I do. Yeah, but it's, it's phenomenal. It's, yeah. it's the machine learning that, that literally iterates, and it's like um, 
they like randomly bring back words that you that it knows that you already learned. It like randomly brings them back at like very specific points in time. Called space repetition. Okay, so yeah, so so you, so I, I understand the learning side. You understand the technical <laughs> side. Yes, we could, we could go build our own app. But yeah, it's it's amazing that they do that. It's 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 incredible. I, I um big fan of do like Rosetta Stone, another yeah. one really great. But yeah, yeah, very similar model. So the way this works, it's using Duolingo is using all of this learning science research on into how how we retain information that has been collected for the past 50 years where it's using things like like um, forced recall where you're doing the quiz and you have to remember like, okay, I can't just, I, when I see the cues, I know which one it is. But when they're asking me for like to come up with a word myself, like do I actually remember it? And then spaced repetition where you don't access information for a while and then it like further concretizes this, this connections in your brain mm-hmm. when you like have to remember after having kind of forgotten. Effectively pulling from 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 long term into short term. Exactly. And that way the, the, the pathway is is further solidified once yeah. it's been in long term. When you pull it into short term, um, yeah. the pathway is now remembered. Yeah. yeah. And and all of this is called adaptive learning. Yeah. And so this is how kids learn. And we have the technology to build apps like this. And people are building these like Duolingo is probably the most well-known example. Sure. But there are apps that do this for math. There are apps that do this for grammar. There are apps that do this for science. Khan Academy is a slightly less technical version of this, but it's, it's running a very similar thing. It is. Um, Although, I mean, I, I just love I just love Sal Khan. I love the, <laughs> I love the teachers. I just he breaks things down in such an interesting way. And then he yeah. usually repeats himself two or three times from very different angles. Yep. So it might not hit everybody. But man, does it cover a large swath, which is another thing that technology changes that kind of makes the classroom model ob- obsolete is you can have these celebrity teachers who are the best at what they do mm-hmm. and they can record videos and then have these accompanying Te- like quizzes and adaptive learning that's and like adaptive practice that's being run on these machine learning algorithms. And you can have all of this accessible to every kid on the planet. You don't need 10 math teachers for a certain grade, le- grade level in every district because every single child can be learning for the best because from the best because technology makes teachers scalable. I mean, it's which, which is true. It's funny because um, there were actually commercials for this in the 90s when we were literally building the Internet. They're like, here's what we're doing. And they were talking. It was usually Internet providers like like, well, at the time it wasn't Verizon, MCI <laughs> or AT&T or yeah. any. And they were literally like, we'll have so much bandwidth. You'll be able to stream video everywhere. And it was one of the commercials I specifically remember was they were doing music teaching and this guy was teaching like a million kids how to blow a horn. Then he called on one of them randomly. Mm-hmm literally hundreds of miles away. And the kid was like, how do I do this? And he's like, that's a great question. And then he went through it. And I, I, I can't remember who the horn, it wasn't Miles Davis, but like it was someone yeah. like extraordinarily well-known. But like, that was the, that was the dream. Like and even, even in the nineties, before we even had this tech, that was the dream for like how to use this thing. And you're right. It's an adoption problem. Yeah. It's an adoption yeah. problem because again, the system is very hard to turn. And why would, like it's a huge problem to try to solve to figure out how to implement all of this into the classroom. But it's also like, who's incentivized to to make this change? Well, here's a question. Is it hard to solve? Well, the reason I ask is, what if you did this? Let me let me spitball for a half second here. <laughs> half second. You probably already thought of this 10,000 times. What if I got the best teacher at X, mm-hmm. whatever X is? I mean, the best. He or she is unbelievable. Everybody loves them. They're incredible. Spend time with the kids, et cetera. And I'm like, here's a million bucks. Here's a million dollars. But you're going to teach 100,000 kids at a time. And you're going to do it via the internet. And 
There's going to be some Q&A sessions, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you just find the best of the best, way overpay them, like way overpay them. And now you've got a school enrollment of, I don't know, several million or whatever it is. Maybe this is what you're trying to do. But like now maybe, maybe, you, maybe you employ what? 30 to 40 to 50 teachers mm -hmm. across the board. They're all top, 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 top tier. And it's like, you don't, you don't need your pension. I'm going to pay you more than your pension ever would in your first year. And what's this, you know, okay, well, what is the, what does the tuition look like? Well, you don't have to charge that much because if you get it, I mean, again, you get this school at scale and it's like, yeah, well, I mean, we have got 300,000 students. We're ready to go. Let's do this. It seems like, at least in my view, that might be a way of, of doing this scale where it's just like, I know that you can't necessarily get the individual help, but it's like, but maybe that's, maybe that's what the teacher does on their off time. Maybe they teach that one hour course and they're like, all right, here's the deal. We use machine learning. We rank the questions. Here's the top 15 questions. And then the teacher puts out, hey, um, after class or homework or whatever it is, hey, review these because here's mm -hmm. the top 10 most or top 15 most answered questions. And they do a quick two minute, three minute, five minute, whatever it is video of like, hey, it's a great question. Here's how to do this. It mm -hmm. seems like you could really carve out a massive space there. So that's already happening. Okay. Um, I mean, that's so, that's so, kind so. of what Khan Academy is. Kind of. It's it's a it's a very similar like this millionaire educator sort of ideal that we're talking about here. We're already moving towards that. You have, and you see this more with like post secondary like alternative education stuff. Like there's a, a guy here in Austin named David Perel who teaches online writing classes yeah. and he has a huge business teaching writing to adults. And like, he is this celebrity educator. Where he's got hundreds of thousands of people following him on Twitter and all these fans. And, and then people can sign up and take his course. And he's a phenomenal writing teacher and he's helped countless people at this point, probably thousands I would become we, writers. But I would argue we have a pretty decent model for, we do. for, for, for adult education, we which do. is awesome. So when I say it's an adoption problem, I mean like in the schools themselves, nobody's tackled the problem of how to integrate what we know about how education, how kids learn into like the government schooling model. The closest thing we see to that is the education saving account programs that are basically democratizing how education dollars are spent in a state, which we have, the it's was passed universally in Arizona. So it applies to every kid in Arizona. They're passing it in Iowa and Kansas right now. Uh, and basically like that means that the parents have access to the money that the state would just funnel into this local district. So instead of, okay, you live in this district. So this money is going here, no matter where your kid goes to school, parents have access to the money and they can spend it on whatever courses they want. So, which is good. But yeah. now I go the other direction. I'm like, all right, we live in Texas. Yeah. Why don't we have a Texas school? That's what it's called. It's called the Texas school. I just named it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we get all the best teachers in Texas. We overpay them. We we figure out how to get it accredited because that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like, great. Here, here you go. Um, and then obviously, the, I mean, don't get me wrong. You need policy changes if we want to use public tax dollars to fund the school. But like otherwise, it's just like, no, you want to send your kid here. It's X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. We're fully accredited, et cetera, et cetera. But beyond that, like, let's be clear, like, we don't have we don't have this teacher who's doing this for fun and to get summers off. We have this teacher who is unbelievably passionate. And the, the thing is, I don't think it's that hard to find these people. I think every single person that I know, even if they didn't like school, had that one teacher. Everybody's got a story about that, that one teacher that would like, yeah. that, you know what I mean? Yeah. That like they, they shine to them and vice versa and so yeah. on and so forth. And it's like, can't we get a bunch of those together? Mm -hmm. And like, 
I don't know, b- build something up to where it's like, yeah, you, you don't have to send your, your kid off to a classroom. Or even if you do, it's like, yeah, but it's, it's online. They got headphones, they've got this, they've got that. And I mean, don't get me wrong, part of it's social interaction and part of it's probably phys- physical education, but like, it seems like these are all solvable problems. Oh, they are. They're, they're, they are solvable problems in the free market outside of the like bureaucratic system that's currently running. Like this is what you just described is one of the multiple billion dollar ideas in the education world, like sitting, waiting to be capitalized. I, on. Would, I would invest in that idea like that's, in a heartbeat. And, and we, there are, there are people building these types of things on a small scale. I think a lot of the education entrepreneurs are like, there are a lot of people building small local schools there are fewer people tackling, like, how do I build a school of celebrity educators who are the best of the best? There are a few different people who are building this type of thing. There's a school, an online school called Prequel that um, they're building. They started out as a, a startup accelerator camp for mm-hmm. high schoolers. It was called Beta Camp, where, like, high school age kids could come into the program, learn from somebody who'd built startups before, like, start their own business, like, start a business for the first time, get all this coaching and then like now they're building multiple different programs on it's it's less like academic subjects and more um, like life skills where you're building like learning how to build an internet audience learning how to build a business learning how mental models work like those types of things but it's the same idea where they're going out and they're finding the best person on the internet who's built an amazing twitter following and it's like okay can you build a course for teenagers on how to do this and then it's infinitely scalable so there are schools that are building things like that. There are also schools that are building like a very tech centric approach to academics. So there's a school here in Austin called Alpha School that is like they don't have teachers and their kids, the kids in the school score like literally off the charts on their academic achievement tests. Like they you're supposed to only be able to get a 300 on a maps test. But their kids discovered that there's like 50 bonus points that nobody knows about that you can like, you can actually get over a 300. Um, and these kids are learning, they're learning all their academic subjects through apps. They're using things like Khan Academy and these other adaptive apps to practice their math and their grammar and their science and their history. And they're getting amazing results from that. And they can also do it in far less time because when you're not caught up in all of the admin stuff that's happening in a classroom, and the waiting for everybody else to finish when you're working, when you're taking exactly as much time you need, no matter how much it is, to finish something. And then as soon as you're done, you can move on to the next thing. That's far more efficient than doing this average pacing thing that we do in the classroom where it's okay if you're not like totally done, but we're out of time. And then tomorrow when you're done in half the time, you just have to sit around and wait. So these kids are learning really quickly. They're scoring off the charts. They're getting like fives on their AP exams and stuff. They're doing incredibly well. Oh. Um learning learning from apps and so we see these types of things they're already happening there's nothing that's happened yet at the scale that you're describing but this is one of many models that could work very well for educating kids where you have an online school and it's not going to be a fit for everybody sure and not everybody's going to want it not everybody's interested in online school that's totally fine like parents choice kids choice but yeah it it absolutely could work to do to do something like that and i think as people a become more comfortable with the idea of school alternatives, which we've seen a lot more of post-COVID. This was one of the biggest silver linings of COVID is that everybody had to have their kids at home. And this this social 
terror of having your kid at home all day, which was like such a meme on the internet pre-COVID, like that just got shot to smithereens because everybody had to do it. And they're like, wait a second, we're all still alive. We survived this. Maybe it's not so scary to have my kid at home. Um, so we've, we're seeing more of that, like people's acceptance of this post-COVID and then simultaneously this big push to democratize funding in on a state level for education makes it a lot more accessible for people who maybe don't have a lot of disposable income to spend on an alternative school. But if they have access to state funding, then they can use that to pay for alternatives like the ones that you described or a local micro school or some other online school that's like very niche set of like mapping onto these kids interests because there's so many we can get into this too there's so many different interesting alternative schools and models already being built it's so cool how much is out there um and these models are being built with the intention of being a lot of them being affordable at the price point of like the average education savings account balance so like with those two things happening to kind of change the overall social milieu that we're in around education, I think we'll, we will see a lot more things like what you're describing start to emerge. I like it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you were homeschooled. I was. How'd you like it? It, I say with complete sincerity that it is one of the best things that ever happened to me. Now, do you think that that's because your parents were so amazing at it, or were there other factors at play? My parents were amazing at it, but being amazing at it is a far less complicated thing than most people assume. Like, them being amazing at homeschooling me did not mean that they had some magical understanding of how pedagogy works. Mm. Or so like I didn't even hear the word pedagogy. My whole, I was like started working in alternative education. I'm like, I'm sorry, what does that mean? <laughs> that sounds in fancy fact, and pretentious. In fact, why don't we why don't we define it for our listeners? Uh, basically, it's like theory on how an approach on how kids learn, how to teach kids. Sure. Um, it's not nearly as complicated as the the multi-syllable word makes it sound. <laughs> uh, being in computer science, we use nothing but ridiculous sounding multi-syllable words. Um, but they sound cool. They do sound cool. And it's part of what, what creates this veneer around like, well, you don't understand pedagogy, so you can't teach your kids. And a parent's like, I don't even know what that is. Like, of course I can't teach my child. Uh, that is false. <laughs> but like my parents, the, I think there, there were a, a handful of very simple things that they got very right. And I don't want to discredit, like my parents are, really cool people and I would not be a cool person if it wasn't for my parents I'm like my mother does not agree with this but I am convinced that if I didn't have super cool parents I wouldn't be super cool but my parents are awesome um but they they got a handful of things really right and the first one is that they gave me a lot of space so it wasn't like my education was not this like super full top down. We have all the different color blocks on our Google calendar schedule. And it's like, well, we got to like leave swimming practice right now because we got to get to like guitar lesson. Right. Uh, it was a much more I had a lot of room to develop. I was not a I was not a tightly pruned plant. I was given space to grow in the way that was natural to me. And emergent for me, which I think is preferable for most people. Um, they also just created 
an amazing milieu for me to be in. Like the environment I grew up in was full of like everywhere I turned was a potential avenue for exploration. We had a house that was full of books and full of craft supplies and a big yard and garden full of things that I could do. And there were different types of toys that I could play with that were very, it was very easy to fall down an imaginative or a creative or an exploratory rabbit hole. We had these science kits that you could, it was, there was, we had one that was, had like a net and like a little book for identifying all the things in the pond in the creek. And then we had one where it was like, you can like do bark rubbings on the different types of trees and like how to make a, a, how to create a leaf skeleton and how to like identify different types of trees based on their leaves and their branch patterns and their nuts and their buds in the spring and how to figure out what they were. And there were all these different, it was basically, I was living in a world full of invitations to go explore things, whatever struck my curiosity, I could go chase. And that milieu is incredibly, that's far more important than the, the actual, yeah, but also the specific types of things you're, like if you set up an environment full of invitations for your kid to explore, the actual curriculum that you're putting them through, I really don't think matters that much. Mm. I think the environment is far more important. And then my parents were also modeling a lot of the things that I ended up becoming, like they are very curious people. They were always reading and asking questions and researching things on the internet and listening to podcasts and d debating things that they found interesting. And so it was just, well, of course I was going to do those things too. They were always building things and making things. And so of course I, you know, children are sponges and they are mimics, they're mimes. So if you behave in a certain way, your child's going to mimic that. So if you're modeling the behaviors that you want your child to embody, especially when they're young, obviously every kid has their own personality and it doesn't always, you know, they're going to react to their environment in different ways. But generally speaking, if you're creating an environment, especially for young kids, that's full of inspiration to become things that you deem virtuous in some way, the likelihood is pretty high that they're going to model that. So my parents were doing all of those things and simultaneously just facilitating my curiosities answering my questions, encouraging me to go down rabbit holes, putting me in environments and situations where I could ask lots of questions and get curious about things. And it's as much about what they didn't do as what they did. Like they were never tampering, tamping down my curiosity. They were never forcing me, forcing the creativity out of me, telling me that I couldn't be creative, that I shouldn't have so many ideas, that I shouldn't go down this creative rabbit hole because it was time to do X. Like they gave me a lot of room for that natural uninhibited curiosity that's so innate in children to thrive. And so because of that, my homeschooling experience was amazing. And but it wasn't I, I say all of this just to emphasize the point that it doesn't have to be that complicated. Like it's not you don't have to buy the perfect curriculum and study how to teach children and like set up your classroom in your home just perfectly and have all the like trappings and posters on the walls it doesn't have to be that complicated mm. it can be a very simple organic iterative process and I think the ideal homeschool experience is because it allows kids like kids are hardwired to learn we would not have survived as a species if we weren't and you see it in the way that children behave like the the processes to go from child to adult are already hardwired in and like little kids learn how to walk and talk, which is the most insane phenomenon ever. Like if you watch a kid learn how to walk and talk and you don't trust their ability to 
learn things, I, I have no idea how you come to that conclusion. It is just, it is almost to the level of miraculousness, the fact that a child can learn how to do that. And that continues, you know, kids become, they go through the why phase, which is such a cultural cliche. But when kids aren't getting their curiosity stifled, that why, that question asking continues. Like little kids ask hundreds of questions a day. There's, there's, there have been studies to count how many questions children are, children are asking at different phases of their development. And when they get into school and they start being in a classroom setting, the amount of questions that they ask plummets because it's not encouraged anymore. It's like, we're not talking about that now. Like it's time to sit still and be quiet. And can you finish your worksheet, please? And like, please don't read ahead because we're going to talk about this part first. Like the curiosity is constantly getting contained instead of allowed to expand. And when allowed to expand, kids develop when they're really little, like two, three, four years old, they start to develop unique interests. They'll become very, there's the cliche ones, like they'll become very interested in dinosaurs or trucks or dogs or whatever but sometimes kids get interested in like really weird stuff too like they want to understand what death is like morbid things that parents you don't talk about as much because it's not as cute but parents will develop these or kids rather will develop these interests and they'll ask iterative questions over time and they're doing this all on their own you don't have to encourage your kid to be into trucks they're just really into trucks but when again people have studied like what's actually happening what are the types of questions they're asking what's happening in the progression of these questions. What people noticed is that as kids are asking these questions, they're learning how to assemble disparate pieces of information and create mental models to synthesize information and then come up with iterative questions. So they're not just asking questions like when kids are pretty little, they're just asking like, why is this that way? And why is this that way? Why are we doing this? But then they start to ask abstract questions. Like kids learn abstract thinking, again, all on their own. People aren't teaching them how to do this. So they develop these interests, they start to assemble information about trucks and they start asking abstract questions about like, well, why isn't that car a truck? Or like, why, why does that truck use diesel fuel, but that truck uses gasoline? Or like, why is, why, why do those big trucks haul so much weight and these like pickup trucks don't? like all these iterative questions that help them assemble a map for how the world works. And as they're doing that, they're assembling the mental frameworks to synthesize information on any topic. And again, all this is happening independently. Parents are not teaching this. Most parents don't know this is happening. They think their kids just like really cute and likes trucks, but really like the entire structure of their brain is being established through these interests. And when you let kids go, these processes continue, but we have this idea that if we don't, educate our children formulaically the way the experts tell us to, they're not going to turn out okay. But that's not true. Most of the time, if you give the kids space, all of these processes happen on their own and they never learn, lose their curiosity and their love of learning because they've never learned to associate that learning is this horribly unpleasant thing, which is basically what school's teaching all of us. For sure. <laughs> For sure. You've, you've definitely de definitely changed my mind about a couple of different things in the, in the past few minutes. So, <laughs> so what was the point where you decided that this is what you wanted to do? I mean, you're, you're clearly passionate about this. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like, especially for kids, you're really, pa like, like kid kids, young, younger kids, you're really passionate. You, You've been engaged this entire time, but particularly in the past five minutes, especially when we were, I'm just saying you really perked up like, 
you're really passionate about that, which is good. That's a great mm-hmm. thing. Um, was there a particular catalyst where you you felt this was 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 uh, the thing that you wanted to jump into? That's a really interesting question. I I simultaneously feel like I've been in this field since I was five years old, and my parents and I were like. I, my parents were talking about whether or not they were good because I was in a private preschool and kindergarten, like very Montessori inspired. And the year I was in kindergarten, my parents were trying to decide if they were going to send me to school. And if so, where? And if not, was I like, were we going to homeschool me? What were we going to do? And so I went through this. I got to be there through the process. They were very open with me explaining how they were thinking about things. And I went with them on all the tours of all these different types of schools. I visited a couple different types of private schools. I We visited a couple Waldorf schools. We visited the public school. I remember all of these visits in vivid detail because it was fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And my parents made a pros and cons list that they put up on the wall and that we were all, you know, writing down our pros and our cons for homeschooling or going to school. And I was invited to add my contributions. Like I was invited to be a part of the process And so in some ways, I feel like I've been doing this since I was like five, because then I was in I was homeschooled, but my sister is six years younger than I am. So like I was involved some in her education. And then in my homeschool co-op when I was and I don't know, maybe fourth or fifth grade, I started like a story time for the younger kids when all the older kids were in classes. I just like read them stories and I came up with activities to do along with the stories. And so it was just this like thing that I was naturally doing. And then you're in a homeschool group full of different kids of different ages. And I was interacting with these kids of different ages and like you play a mentor figure to the younger kids in the same time that you're learning from the older kids and then after I graduated I started teaching writing classes at my homeschool co-op because it just was like a thing to do so in some ways it feels like I've been doing this for decades but then in other ways I feel like I ended up here entirely by accident it was never a thing where I sat down and I was like I want to work in education it just kept happening I graduated from high school there was this a a mom in our homeschool group asked me if I would tutor her kids in writing I was like well actually why don't I put together a class and the objective is going to be I'm going to teach these kids how to love writing I'm not going to teach them any grammar I can teach them any spelling I can teach them any mechanics but I'm gonna make all your kids who won't write for you for anything I'm going to make them want to write. I'm going to show them that it's fun. And all the parents were like, yes, we will pay you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. I taught a writing course and the kids didn't want to write when they started. And by the time we were like halfway through the semester, the kids would come running into class with like a piece of paper. They'd be like, Hannah, Hannah, look what I wrote this week. Like, I want you to read my story. So I taught them writing was fun. Uh, And then parents wanted me to tutor their kids and then I was teaching with an after school program for a little bit and then I discovered this program called Praxis that was a startup apprenticeship program and a college alternative which was the thing that made me brave enough to not go to college I was like hey other people are doing this clearly I'm not totally ruining my life by not going to college Um, like these people don't think I'm insane even though everyone else does and I really wanted to work for them and I ended up working for them for years and So like my first real startup job was in the education space. And then I built such a network in the education world and I was writing about it because I felt like I had a lot to say and I kind of wanted to give back. I was like all these other people had encouraged and inspired me 
to take a unique path, but also my parents were reading about other homeschoolers when they decided to homeschool me. And again, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I want to share my experience and like add to this milieu of ideas that's circulating about like add my little endorsement to the to the general array of information that's out there about this. This worked for me, too. It might work for you. Uh, I just felt really strongly about that. And then I had just built such a network of of people that by the time I left Praxis, the types of opportunities that were coming my way were education. And it still kind of felt random to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is another education process. <laughs> like, what's happening? Um, but I also think the best things are very organic like that, where you just sort of feel like you stumbled into it by accident. Um, and at this point, I just the more I think about it, the more I just feel like I don't know if there's anything more important than this because kids are the future of everything. So you can like I, I feel I, I get frustrated by this on a political stand from a political standpoint a lot because people education kind of feels boring to people. It's like, well, I don't have kids. This isn't like I'm not I'm not a mom or a dad yet. Like I'm, I'm still young and cool. And this isn't like I'm much more interested in foreign policy or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But if you ever plan to have children, the people who are going through the education system right now are probably the ones who will be educating your kids. So you better hope that they're getting a good education because otherwise your kid is screwed. Even if you don't plan to have kids, if you plan to engage in society at all, the people who are going through the education system right now are the ones that are going to be caring for you when you're old. They're the ones you're going to be interacting with. They're the ones who are going to be voting about policy when you're older. And if you care, you know, if you're, if you're thinking politically at all, like these people are going to impact you a lot. And all the other stuff that you think is important now, even if you're building towards like the brightest and the best future ever, if people are coming out of the education system and they don't care about the same things you do, you do or they just don't care at all, they're apathetic, which is pretty common. Um, none of it matters. And people don't have I don't think that most people are very good at long term thinking because they don't have children. And so they are thinking in terms of years and maybe decades because that was, that's what impacts them. But once you have kids, you start thinking in terms of decades and generations because suddenly you have something that outlives you that is more important than you. And people's thinking changes quite a bit and then education becomes important. But I think it's a real mistake to think that education isn't important even if you're not thinking in those terms yet because it affects everything. Everything follows from education. So... And I just really like kids, too. And so I see kids struggling in the system and I'm like, I want to help them. I want to help parents feel brave enough to do something about this because they can. And I want to be their cheerleader. It's like, no, you can you can do this. And I want to be the person that's like if I can save like every kid that I can, every family that I can empower to pull their kid out of the system, that child is an entire life changed. That is entire, entire potential preserved. And there are a lot of other things in life that I think are cool, but none of them feel more important than that. So that's why I'm doing this. I still don't really think of myself as an education person. I kind of laugh when people introduce me as such because it's like, yeah, I guess that's what I talk about a lot. But I feel much more complex and dynamic than that. But it's kind of become my thing. I think people are much more comfortable putting people in boxes than than letting you have sort of a <laughs> smattering of things, right? Yeah, but but I do talk about education a lot, so I guess it's warranted at this point. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's an interesting it's an interesting that you that you 
that you don't believe that you sort of had a catalyst to specifically push you in that you feel it was almost accident. To be honest with you, I feel the exact same way about tech. Um, <laughs> like I said, the best things. Yeah. I, I, there was no specific push towards it. I was just kind mm-hmm. of always drawn towards it um, for, for a long time. Well, um, let's just say, mm-hmm. for sake of argument. Okay. That you are now the dictator of the United States. Ooh. And you're a benevolent dictator, hopefully. Obvi- obvious, hopefully. Obviously. I would never, I would always be benevolent. What's, what would you do in terms of education? I mean, you can literally do whatever you want. I could literally do whatever Anything. I want. Anything. You can restructure it tomorrow. How does it look? Like, what is the golden state? The reason I ask this question, if you want me to give a little context. Yeah, please. So I tend to ask these type of questions. I actually do this in tech as well. What does mm-hmm. the golden state look like? And the reason is, basically, if you if we know where we want to go, mm-hmm. right, it's easier to work backwards as opposed to, okay, what's stage one? And it's like, well, I don't know because I don't know where we're going, right? So it's, it's tougher to build up than it is to sort of like scale downwards. Yeah. Not that you won't you know, go some, through some twists and turns along the way. But if we know what the golden state looks like, then it's easier to work backwards and say, all right, how do we get there from where we are now? Like, what would the changes look like? And you could probably do some incremental things along the way. Yeah. So tomorrow you are the queen of the United States <laughs> or empress or just grand high dictator, whatever it is <laughs> that you choose, your your grace um, <laughs> for your title. But... What does education look like that the next day? Yeah, that's I'm going to preface this answer by saying that uh, if I were actually the dictator and probably had a lot of lead time to becoming the dictator to think about this, the answer might change a little bit. Uh, This is like you handed this to me right now. And I'm like, oh, no, I've had no time to prep. This is the best I can do. Um, I mean, I can I can (laughs) I can preface it with you, you found a genie. Oh, and then the genie made you dictator because it misheard you. Oh, I was going to say, I don't know what, what this says about what you think of me, that you think that's what I would no, ask let's for. Let's just say it misheard you. <laughs> it misheard me. I it love it. misheard you. And it's like, okay, now you're the very dictator. Very polite. Like, okay. I'm not going to burn a wish to stop this. So <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I'll just take it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do some good while I'm here. Um, well, I think because you, you, you said the golden state of education. And I know you mean like status and state of being, but I also just like I'm going to dive in there because the state should have very little to do with education, like the, the governmental state. Should I very, like that is that is one of the biggest problems of how we ended up where we ended up is because the government got involved. Which so is, your first you know, thing is to execute the um, secretary of education. I don't know that I would execute <laughs> per se. I'm I'm not sure I'm that violent, but I'm just saying dictators would, tend to like not fire people. But I'm a benevolent dictator. That's true, remember? That's true. Uh, well, I would just get rid of the whole department of education. Like, Done. Why? Okay, it's gone. <laughs> Now let's, so, <laughs> now let's talk about the Golden State. <laughs> so in one of the biggest fallacies about education is that before we had the Department of Education, everybody was just dumb and ignorant and uneducated. And that is not true. So revolutionary era America, colonial America, there is no central locus of authority with education. There's no there's no system. There's no centralization. It's all happening on a local level. The literacy rates were very comparable to our literacy rates today in terms of the percentage of the population that could read. It's a little more complicated to get exact numbers because like we classified people differently. They're like different. It was like 
white men, white women, right. slaves, like all these different types of groups. I was going to say, I'm guessing there's some differences there. There's but, some, but there's some differences, but like that's generally. That's not an educational problem. That's a, we were idiots in the past. Yeah, problem. we've we've evolved <laughs> since then. But it, population at large, literacy rates were very similar. Like I, I want to say it was like about 80% of the population was like very functionally literate. Um which unfortunately is not that far off from our current numbers. Um, but not only was the population literate, but when you look at the reading materials of the day, the Federalist Papers were published in popular newspapers intended to be read by the common man yep. to convince him that the Constitution should be ratified. The Federalist Papers today are considered to be difficult reading at like a college level. Like it's considered to be tough. And it's not just that it's antiquated language. It's it's not that antiquated. I've read the Federalist Papers. It's well, I have too. But it's yeah, it's, it's not it's that not, antiquated. Well, not only that, but it, it it's not just that we we talk differently now and so it feels it doesn't feel colloquial anymore. But the con it's the con it's conceptually complex. And it's not just that they use different words, it's they use a, a lot of words and they use big words. And that is considered challenging reading today, but that was directed, that was not directed at like college professors and PhD candidates. This was directed at the common man who's running a business as a cobbler or a tailor or a cooper or he's a tradesman and or a farmer and you wanna get his support for this cause that you believe in. And that's the way that they chose to do it. Mm -hmm. And so not only was the literacy rate high, but people were very functionally literate. And this, we got there, not through some dictatorial, like we need to have X standard of education, whatever. It was a very grassroots approach. And if I were the dictator of the country, I would get us back there as quickly as possible. Because the idea that some authority in Washington, D.C. or a state capital or whatever knows what's best because they're highly credentialed and have very impressive, you know, papers and sheepskins on their wall. And they're like, well, I clearly know what is best for every child in America because I am an expert. Like, that's just a ridiculous idea. And because kids, even if there are different ways that kids learn, they fit different archetypes, they're still individuals and they need to be treated as individuals. And the the most intelligence in terms of how to treat the individuals of a community is the community. So you want a very grassroots, bottoms up approach to education. It takes a village type of deal. Yeah, exactly. So in the colonial era, we had a lot of community schools um, and there were a lot of different types. There were parochial schools. There were uh, like different types of private schools. There were a lot of schools were run in people's living rooms and in their businesses. And I think that's a really beautiful model that we should return to. We are returning to. That's the whole idea of a micro school. It's like it's the one room schoolhouse for the 21st century. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. I would like to see a lot more of that starting to proliferate. It's a movement that's growing very quickly. And I'm very excited about it because that's what education ought to be. It's not an institutional thing. The idea that kids belong in institutions is a tragedy. They don't. They belong in the community. And I would get us back as quickly as possible to education <laughs> is the community's problem. And you figure out the best way to educate your kids. 
And I mean, I would, I'm very libertarian, so I would do a lot of things as a dictator that would change how the whole structure works. But assuming I was not allowed to change anything else, it's like, you can be the education dictator and nothing else. I'm like, okay, so we still have taxpayer money funding the system in this like very strange, arbitrary way that we currently have it set up, which I think is also rife with problems, but I'm not allowed to change that part. Uh, I would move the money, I would like make the, the money accessible to the parents to do with as they pleased for like, I think the ESA models it's a solid approach for now. I would get rid of taxpayer money funding education at all if I could do whatever I wanted. But now we're getting into more extreme levels of dictatorship where I'm changing a lot of things. I'm like abolishing the IRS and, you know, I'm getting rid of a lot of things. But <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would have a lot of a lot of stuff to do in that realm. Um, is there any is there any technology approaches that you would take as as dictator of education? No, because I don't think that it's I don't. I don't think that education should be a top-down thing. So really, as dictator of education, I would just get myself out of it. I would get everybody out of it okay. because it should be... It gets complicated when you start having arguments about, like, well, should education be mandatory at all? What should be... There are arguments on both sides of the coin. I honestly don't know where I land because I have, like, for for most people... I'm, again, very libertarian. I don't think that there should be regulation around it. But, yes, there are kids that get lost in the shuffle if there is no regulation around education. Like, most parents want their kids to be educated, and they will be very responsible about making sure that their kids are getting access to things. who aren't going to do it unless there's a law. Yeah. There are outliers who – there are kids who are like, in really horrible situations, and, like, you do have to account for that somehow, and I don't have – I don't yet. Someday I will probably have opinions on this, but at this point I don't feel like I have That's really fair. strong there's, opinions. I don't think there's on... a magic bullet for any of this. <sighs> now you tell me now that you've made me dictator and you've been like, do one thing. It's like, well, but also you can't fix everything. <laughs> but I think. It sounds like the main theme is basically get it down to the community level. Yeah. And, and the tech, like, I'm also quite the capitalist. So if you have a demand for technology that can solve the community's problems, the community is going to invest in it. So if you can build technology that is going to make information easily accessible, and again, like even just with the internet, like that technology alone made everything we do in education completely obsolete. Like there is no need for schools anymore. There is no need for universities anymore because all like our entire our entire structure for how we th- approach education is predicated on the assumption that information is a, is geographically tied, that there are physical locations for information that you must go to and you need because it's physical and it's non-scalable. Like you have books, but you still like you can't ask a book questions. You can't ask a book for like follow up resources. You can't discuss with a book. Right. You have to have gatekeepers or stewards and custodians of these books to add all of the other elements to an education beyond just what's housed in a book. So that was how information was transferred all the way up until the internet went online. And so the assumption that education needs to be geographically centered was correct, but that ceased to be true. And yet we are persisting with these idea, this model that education has to be a localized thing when it, doesn't. And so the fact that you can access any information on the planet effectively, pretty much, you can find out almost anything you want to know by knowing how to 
create a good Google query. Like that's insane. That that in and of itself, where we haven't even nearly caught up to that in terms of how we think about education. But there's so much room for technological advances. And like AI is gonna play a huge role in this. There's a Socratic tutor mode on GPT four that people can play with. That's like, you know, it's it's all very rudimentary still. But and I have a lot of I have a lot of feelings about all of this too that we don't necessarily have to get into. We can, but we don't have to. Um but like all of that is opening up um, like so many different ways for technology to interact with mm. kids and make information accessible to kids. And so all that's going to happen. That doesn't need any type of government as a dictator. I don't need to interfere in that whatsoever. If being a dictator also means I have access to a lot of capital that I can like invest as a VC, that's a different story. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm a dictator. I can do whatever I want, but I wouldn't do it from a policy standpoint. Um, no, I would just give, give, education control back to the parents, back to the communities, which are effectively just comprised of parents. It's just, you know, groupings of them pooling resources yeah. together. And I would let it be an individual thing and let the technology follow in the free market to serve the needs that are emerging in that, which I think without all of the regulation and complications, it would do very quickly. Okay. Um, I can't speak for everybody on this, but just for myself, I agree with the, well, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think there's one sort of caveat that I would put in there, at yeah. least for myself, which is I actually really enjoy different physical spaces. So, for instance, in my house, like mm. I work from home. Yes. But I needed different physical space from where, like, I, you know, watch TV or play Xbox or, you know, just screw, you know, screw around or play with a dog or whatever. My office is very separate. Like, I don't have a TV in my office. There's nothing in my office but my computer, my desk. Um, that's pretty much it. And the reason is I really, really, really require a different physical space. It's just something I've learned about myself as, as I've um, sort of, I don't, I guess, grown up. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was really difficult for me, like study in my room when I was growing up. Um, it was much easier to do it in a different room for some random reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the same thing when I, when I was at uh, university, um, I had a desk in my room, but like, Cambridge is set up very different than most universities in, the, in that, like, that you don't have roommates or any of this stuff, but, like, couldn't do it. Y your room isn't really set up for people. It's really set up for you to sleep or study. And so in that realm, it was like, yeah, this is a really easy place to do this. Some people went to the library. Other people didn't. Um, but most people went to the library to go check books out. They didn't necessarily just read there, although some did, just to get mm -hmm. out of the out of the their room. Yeah. My point is a, a separate physical space was reasonably important, at least for me. And I feel like that might be one thing we would have to look into under your dictatorial plan, which is, you're right, geographically, no, there's there's no geographical tie to information anymore. That's ridiculous. Well, but it's in a book. Scan the book. Like mm -hmm. like at the at the like at the worst level of tech, scan the book. Yeah. Assuming it's not already scanned, which it probably is. Most of them are. Yeah. Um, but then beyond that, it's like, yeah, but I do, I do. Not sure I can do all this in my, you know, when I'm 15 years old and I've got a TV over here, I've got my computer, I've got access to unlimited internet stuff, I've got, uh, you know, my cell phone in my pocket, all, you know what I mean? Like all sorts of stuff like that. I feel like I would get too distracted. Well, this comes back to environment structure, like how you're setting up the environment, which your kids learn. And I do think it's important to be very deliberate about that, um, especially with younger kids, like even about how you choose to introduce technology and how much they have access to. Do they have like screen time? Do they have unlimited screen time? Are there like windows of time? Mm -hmm. Are they using a shared family device where there's more 
like very clear guardrails with like, no mom needs the computer back so you can't use it anymore, which is what my childhood was like. Um, you know, is TV always accessible? Is it specific times a day? Does the TV live in like dad's office and you can only access it when he's not working? Like, what are the parameters here? And you can be very deliberate about that. Um, but you're totally right that people learn well in different in, or learn better in different types of environments, depending on the person. And there are different ways that people are solving this problem, too. So there's this very... <laughs> There's this very interesting model called co-learning spaces or self-directed learning centers, which is kind of like a WeWork for kids. What first came to my mind? I was like, I was like, is this kids WeWork? Yes, That's awesome. it is. So, and there's there's different models that people have. Some of them have like more structured kind of paths that you can take. There are alternative schools that run like WeWorks for kids too, like the Alpha School that I was describing here in Austin. It's basically you walk in and it's just like desks everywhere. It's like sit to stand desks everywhere. It's basically a WeWork for kids. There's the call booths. It's awesome. Um, but some of these are more structured, self-directed learning centers where it's like an actual program you can send your kids to. Others are, it's just a space where you can drop off your kid whenever you need a third a third place for them. And or I guess a second place if you're, everything else is happening at home. Um, but you can like drop your kid off and you can, like they can do their own work or they can play with each other. They can bring their school along, whatever. So there are people who are solving for this. And that's one of the things with school too, is that education really isn't actually its primary objective. Like really its primary objective is childcare. That's a huge reason why a it's structured the way it is. It's modeled after the work day because parents need somewhere to send their kids when they go to work it's why the days are so long. They don't need to be. There's no academic reason why kids need to spend seven to eight hours a day in school. It's a huge waste of time, but you need somewhere to send the kids when parents are working. And that's part of why so many parents don't pull their kids out is because they they want the two-income household and they want, like they've made a set of decisions that have led them to that being necessary. And they feel like they want to have, they want to have their, they, they, they need somebody to take care of the kids and it's free. Like, well, it's not free because you're paying for it with your taxes, but because you're already required, you're, yeah. it's a forced subscription service. If you're paying for it, you might as well use it is kind of the idea. So like that, that is the primary objective of school. And there's a whole other list of things that school is doing before education. Like education's very far down the list of reasons why the school system exists, but the like to to, the, to your question about kids needing other environments, they they do sometimes, not always, but one you can set up the home environment in a way that's conducive to learning, and two, there are lots of innovative ways to build that second space or third space or whatever that kids can go to. That's it doesn't require there to be these physical government schools in every town the way that we assume it needs to be, which makes sense. Um, I'm not really sure how to get around the point that you just rose though, which is, which is basically, you're right. It's a lot of the schooling is for childcare and mm -hmm. people want the double income. Some people require outright the double income. So, well, that's changing too. It's a tough, okay. Because that's the other silver lining of COVID is that a lot of people also are able to work from home now that weren't before. So if you can be at home 
and you can have your kid in online school. That's an option. That's a that's a problem solve. If you can create True. a homeschooling pod, I knew when I was growing up, I knew homeschooling families who they like both dads were working full time, both moms were working part time, and they deliberately like chose jobs and arranged their schedules in a way where they had these intersecting schedules. So one or the other mom would have the kids and the other mom would be working and they were able to make it work doing that. Um, a lot of families get grandparents involved or friends involved. They'll create homeschooling pods, which is like, you know, two to four to five, however many families that are all supporting each other in homeschooling. And the kids go to whoever's house for the day and that mom's in charge. And then the other moms are doing their or dads or whoever are doing their thing. Um, there are a lot of ways to solve that problem again with the ESA stuff that's starting to happen in different states. Like in those states, you have the funding to go pay for micro schools. There's also there's a really cool micro school network called Prenda that's based in Arizona, but they're they're in five states currently and working to expand. But they're working specifically with states that have um, like the the funding that that have the the school funding set up that allows their program to work. But basically, what they do it's a micro school, so it's they have a teacher who's going to start a micro school in a town and usually she, he or she is running it out of their home. And the Prenda works with the state to get state funding for the school. So that they're getting like per child, kind of like a charter, they'll use the charter laws, I think. Yeah. To And so there's like specific states that have charter laws that are amenable to this. So they're working with those states specifically, but like per kid, they're going to say it's like, I don't know, 8,000 per kid and you have a class of 10 kids, you're getting 80,000 from the state to fund the school. You pay your teacher like 50 or 60,000. This is a mom who'd be home with her kids anyway, most likely. And now she's making like a full-time income, which is great teaching other people's kids. And then, you know, like 20,000 or whatever is getting kicked back to Prenda HQ to keep the whole operation running. And it's this really interesting model of working with states and the laws that they already have on the books to fund micro schools. So there's stuff like that that people are also building that's making this free for people and for the parent that's facilitating it is actually turning it into a job. So given that um, given that these schools are, well, given that education in that those years mm -hmm. is fe federally and I think state mandated, mm -hmm. um, and I know you have a lot of, a lot of <laughs> irritation there, but... <laughs> Given that is the case, are yeah. there specific checks that these people are doing? Is it, I mean, how, how does that work? It totally depends on a state level. Um, every state is different, which makes it kind of complicated to give people advice. It's like, you got to go look at what your state's telling you. Um, and it's different for like homeschooling and different types of private schools too. So in some states like Alaska, for example, they don't care what you do. You can have your kids home and they're like, okay, cool. Have fun. And then there are states like New York that are super restrictive. I grew up in Pennsylvania, which was a fairly restrictive state. So in my state, I had to. Neither one, none of the three states that you said were either restrictive or, or unrestrictive. None of those have been shocking so far. <laughs> yeah, not, it's, it's, it's rarely like a surprise. Rarely a surprise. Um, Pennsylvania was fairly restrictive. So when I was growing up, we had to. I think the legal schooling age was eight or nine it was when I was in third grade I had to start going to we had to start submitting paperwork every year and I think it's like 
eight through 16 or nine through, I think it was, it was when you start, I think it was when you start the school year. So like the year I was eight at the beginning of the school year, which was third grade, all the way through to your 16 when you can legally drop out. You have to submit paperwork with your local school district saying that you're homeschooling. You have to do tests. I think it was third, fifth and eighth grade. I had to take like a standardized test. Um, we had to go to a state certified evaluator every year who would look over our schoolwork. You could pick your evaluators. You can pick somebody cool. But they like go over your schoolwork and make sure that you've done an acceptable amount of work for the year. They're the ones who proctor the, the tests. And then they write a letter that you submit to your school district that certifies that you got an appropriate education for whatever grade level you're at, which is it, it, the whole thing is like ridiculous. Or what? The teacher police are going to come arrest you? Yeah. I mean, people get people to get in trouble for sure. Really? Yeah. For what to do with their own children. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, the types of things you can, you have to submit dental records to your school district. You have to submit vaccination records. I don't remember if there are other medical records or not. You have to submit test scores. You have to submit a portfolio of work. You have to submit, you're supposed to log hours for how many hours you're spending on school in a school year and days you're supposed to do 180 logged days of I don't think anybody actually does this but you're supposed to log like 180 days and you're supposed to get this evaluate this evaluation letter and I'm pretty sure like if they don't approve of any piece of this they can give you a really hard time like I'm sorry your dental records aren't up to date like yeah wow yeah and, and different states are different like again there are some very very homeschool friendly states out there too but so there is a Wildly popular and unpopular idea I've heard at the same time. If you talk to uh -huh. anybody under the age of 18, mm -hmm. they'll tell you this is the worst idea that's ever happened. Okay. And if you talk to most parents, they'll be like, yeah, it's a great idea. And that is you got to get rid of summer. Most, most countries no longer do this weird, like, gigantic summer break as if they have to work in the fields or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I know we... We can go through it and, you know, the, it's it's all about working in the agriculture sector and so on and so forth. But especially the ones that have surpassed us, which is quite a few countries at this point, uh, that have surpassed us academically, I don't think a single one of them does the American-style school year. They all do full-year school. What are your thoughts on that? It's really funny that you asked this because I was just talking about this with somebody on Twitter today. Okay. Um, so I... I think there are many facets to this because it's a known phenomenon that great learning loss occurs during the summer. So basically what that means is kids aren't doing that active recall or like spaced repetition thing. So they're not re-accessing information that's stored in their memory. They forget it over time. And then you come back to school and you'll kind of have to start over. So there's kids like make all this forward progress and they backslide and they make all this forward progress and they backslide. And this happens every year. Um, so it's inefficient from a learning standpoint to not be to be taking summer breaks. But at the same time, summer is the only time that kids have to be kids. Because it's the only unstructured time true that they have. And so the fact that I mean, they have breaks throughout the year. They I mean, do. I'm, I'm just saying the, the other countries like they have spring breaks and summer breaks and winter breaks, et cetera. And they're usually a little longer than ours are, mm -hmm. but you're right. There's not like this three month hiatus. Yeah. And there's something about that. That's also like, it's the only time that's left for childhood. And so I think both of these things are indicative of all the ways that we're doing this wrong. I definitely think that learning should be, it's very weird that we 
we sort of segment it into certain days of the week and certain times within those mm-hmm. days and then certain months throughout the year. But like it you said, that's the child care portion. Yeah, but it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way. Like learning is a thing that you're doing all of the time. You and I are having this conversation. We're both learning things. And, you know, like it's it's a thing that you do 24 seven all the time. We might listen to somebody else's podcast with, like on the way home or whatever. And it's like, OK, well, now I'm learning something else. I'm going to read a book tonight. I'll learn something new. Like it's a thing that's happening all the time. And we're teaching kids that it's this thing that happens in these very segmented, regimented hours, which is very strange. But we're we're also we're wasting so much of kids time. Like in my in my ideal scenario, like I think if I was setting up the ideal way to teach kids, it would be a couple hours a day, every day, all the time. Are, and we, the rest are we of back time. to you as education dictator? I guess so. I guess so. I didn't think I was going to mandate anything, but maybe. Do it. Do it. Get in there. <laughs> so it'd be a couple hours a day. If I could make, uh, if, if the dictator could make some strong recommendations. Sure. I don't think I could quite force people to do this. But if I could make, you know, decrees about what I think you should be doing. Okay. In my expert opinion i'm becoming one of those now <laughs> it would be uh, like kids should learn a couple hours like spend a couple hours a day actively learning about whatever it doesn't have to be formal sit down study work but actively learning and then the rest of the time they're they can do whatever they want and so most of their childhood is still spent on childhood and the the parts of childhood that are currently reserved for summer are getting extended into the rest of the year and at the same time, the learning process is being pulled out into summer as well and even into the break times so that your kids are and, and learning can be fun. Like you can bake brownies with your kid and teach them how fractions work with the measuring cups. And like, that's a great time. I'll be honest with you. This is, a, this is now you got me riled up. <laughs> now you got me riled up because this is this is one of my most irritating areas. I, I, I loved university. I yeah. really did not like one through 12. I mm-hmm. really, really disliked it for a, a million different reasons. Um, one claim to fame I had mm-hmm. um, is growing up doing um, doing uh, during trigonometry class. So yeah. our teacher was up there teaching things and I, I, I can't remember. I guess he was in a bad mood. Anyway, I yawned. Mm. Um, oh, no. <laughs> it wasn't on purpose, but like it was kind of loud. You're and- so something like that and basically (laughs) he made the mistake um not clearly not knowing who i was in fact i'm pretty sure this was like month one or two um of me actually meeting this particular teacher and he goes uh am i boring you and i was like no i just you know i I, we're, we're going through numbers it's fine and he goes, well, if you think you can do it better. And I was like, fine, give me the chalk. So I took it out of his hand, which he was shocked. He couldn't believe that because I popped up out of the desk. I was like, good. And something active, I'm going to do this. So um, I went to a, yeah, I went to an all boys Catholic school. So, you know, you could just read into that any way you want. Um, but one of the things I ended up doing was I basically said, all right, who wants to help me make an 800 meter sniper shot? Now you have to understand this is a bunch of teenage boys. We're all about 16 years old. Every hand in the friggin' room shot up. I'm not even sure it would have made a difference if it was boys and girls, but like an 800-meter sniper shot, what, what? And I'm like, right, that's trig. All of it's trig. Every single part of it is trig. The angle, the velocity, the bullet drop, et cetera. And so we ended up going through this and applying the principles that the, the teacher was teaching. 
Weirdly, I don't know what it was, but he took a cue from that at some point, and then every day we were going through various trig, he would set up some sort of scenario. Usually it was something vile that you would never actually want to bring up in front of 16-year-olds, but 16-year-old boys are like the most, you know, especially the Catholics in the Catholic school, just the most, you have the worst possible <laughs> outcomes. There were video games, you know, all Grand Theft Auto and all these horrible yeah. things. So you, he, he... He basically made it to a point where he was like, okay, I get it. That was interesting. So I ended up kind of teaching him like, hey, you want to keep these guys' attention. This is how to do it. Weirdly, that wasn't the first time that that had happened. The first time that it happened for me, I was just sharing one, one mm -hmm. or two education is actually seventh grade. Okay. So we were learning Latin. Nobody on the planet wants to learn Latin. And if you want to learn well, Latin. I did. Uh, I'm a nerd. Well, good for you. <laughs> we, we hated it so much. Um, regardless. We were learning Latin, et cetera, and we would have these really, really uh, tough tests on it and all this stuff. But our seventh grade Latin teacher, Mr. Geis, he actually taught my dad, too. So, like, there was, yeah, whole history there. But he was really good at this. What he said was, it's a 55-minute class. Give me 40 minutes of absolutely undivided attention. 40 minutes solid. After that, we'll talk Roman history, and I'll answer, yep. Even those questions, because, of course, seventh grade, we're all thinking about, like, fighting or the Roman orgies or, you know, something crazy. And he was like, I'll answer anything you want and we'll discuss crazy parts of Roman history. And we were like, can we get 15 minutes solid? He's like, 15 solid. I'll, we'll go all the way through it, but you got to give me 40 minutes solid of Latin. There wasn't a peep. Not a single peep in the room. Even the ADD kids, like, weren't moving. They were like, okay, I'll control myself because I'm so excited to learn. Because when we learned, when he did it, and we were like, he hit 40 minutes, he's like, all right, 40 minutes, let's go. And then he just went straight through it. The gladiators and the lions and, um, you know, the handmaidens and all this crazy stuff. And we were just like, this is the way to learn. Mm -hmm. This is the way. Anyway, um, those were sort of two examples from my my particular childhood where I was just like, this is this is, I don't know why everybody doesn't do this. This is the spot. This is the way. This is that is the way. That is the way. Learning should be applied. It should be interest driven. It should be a negotiation with your kid if you're trying to get them to learn something that they don't want to learn. It's like, well, you give me some of this. Here's why it's important. I'm going to contextualize it for you so you know why we're doing this. And then we'll do this other thing that you want to do too. But it can be it can be fun. Like learning shouldn't feel like work. It doesn't have to. It often does. Because of the way, like it's it's structured on a work model where it's all coercion and have to dos and extrinsic motivators, and it's it's a terrible way to indoctrinate kids into being. When again, they're naturally hardwired to be really curious about stuff, and you can tie like you're like you said, the sixteen year old boys they want to learn how to make sniper shots. If you start with that, and then you're like, so if you want to do this, do you want to be that character in the movie that you love who can make these sniper shots you want to learn how to be that guy everybody's like yes it's like okay well here's what you need to, here's what he knows that you don't and then you teach some trig like if you if you teach that way you can have kids wrapped attention the entire way through and it again it doesn't take that much time out of the day until they get into like maybe high school it doesn't have to be that complicated and so if you teach kids that way it can be an incredibly fun experience for the adult it can be an incredibly fun experience for the kid. And they will also retain, like you remember the oh, stuff you learned God. in these classes. All of it. Because you cared, <laughs> you were interested, it mattered to you. In fact, I remember the first day he said that we were learning to conjugate um, 
We're learning to conjugate I am. Sum as es, sumus estes sunt. I can still remember that from seventh grade. That's the full conjugation <laughs> of I am, you are, they are. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> sum as es, sumus estes sunt. I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. It worked. <laughs> it really Because can. you cared. Yeah. You cared. Yeah. But think of all the things that you didn't care about that just went in one ear and out the other because it didn't matter. Which was unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's a huge waste of time. Final question. Yes. If there was a piece of technology for some definition of that word mm-hmm. that you could sort of will into existence that would have to do with your field, what would that be? I think it would be very cool for there to be a more kid-friendly interface to the internet. Like right now it's very adult-centric and that's fine, but it's really hard to give kids just free reign access to it because I mean, you can put parental controls and stuff on different apps and different devices, but it's not ideal. And there are kids who are asking questions of Google that are, their kids speak, they're not adults speak, and Google isn't as trained in how to answer those types of questions. But it'd be very cool if there were access points to the internet for kids that just made information a little more age appropriate, but also a little more accessible. Makes so sense. that kids really could interface with this wealth of information that is available to them without needing as much parental guidance and support. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be very cool. I also think we're going to see in the coming years, a much more expansive marketplace of options for schools emerging. And I think, and there's, you know, there are the local micro schools. There are this thing called forest schools where you like go into the woods and do cool stuff as a kid. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, There are world schools, which are internet schools that are intended for people around the globe. And part of the learning experience is that you're taking a class in like poetry or something with a kid from the Philippines and a kid from India and a kid from Switzerland, a kid from Poland, and then you're like friend in Kansas and whatever. And those these different types of models that are emerging are very cool. But in the long term, I think the ideal is going to be a very customizable mix and match model where you have access to all these different types of schools. It's easy to find them, which is part of what I'm building, is making it easier for people to to find all these options, become aware of what exists, figure out which one is the right one for their specific scenario. But having this like very easy to access repository of all of these things that you can very easily like pick and choose the elements of each one to make it as frictionless as possible and require as little research as possible to find the best things for every every element of what you want your kid learning or what they're curious about. Um, maybe even something that's like connecting them to experts like this commercial for the internet that you were talking about, like something like that would be, I think we're going to see that in the next few years anyway, but that's something I'm very excited to watch emerge because if we have a true marketplace that parents can just like log into and find resources, that would be pretty incredible in terms of reducing friction for parents finding options chasing them and kids being able to truly get the kind of customized education that is possible with the internet, but currently requires a lot of effort. And that can like really set them up for the life trajectory that's going to be most suited to their specific interests and proclivities and 
skill and talents, um, which is what the internet allows. It allows for a level of customization and education that we've never seen before. And except for like people who've been able to afford elite tutors, which is a very small subset of, of people, it's, it's available to everybody now. And we just need like the more tools that unlock that, the better. Okay. Hannah, you are the rebel educator. Where can people find you <laughs> online? Uh, so you can find me on my personal Twitter, which is at Hannah Frankman. Uh, I also run the Rebel Educator Twitter account. So that's at Rebel Educator. Uh, you can find links to everything else that we're doing there. And then I don't have an official launch date for the podcast yet, but you'll be able to find it under my name on YouTube soon. So keep an eye out for that. And if you're following me on Twitter, I'll be sharing tons of stuff there. So I don't know if that will be released before or after the show goes live, but if it is live, you'll be able to find me on YouTube. Just look for my name, Anna Frankman. Um, and if it's not live yet, follow me on Twitter or sign up for our email list and you'll get updates on that very soon. If you want to hear me riff about this a lot more and talk to a lot of education nerds, that's where you go. <laughs> Amazing. Well, this has been a great conversation, Hannah. Thanks so much. We have been standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.